1: to get started visit plushcare.com weight loss that's plushcare.com weight loss and now part two with robert sapolsky yeah that the getting into how much of our um makeup is either echoed in our body or driven by our body i find endlessly fascinating Um, my wife and i have been together for been married for 21 years And so we get asked a lot about, oh, you know, what's the secret to a long marriage? And while I rarely give this answer, the thing that's in my mind a lot of times is I almost certainly have a lot more receptors for vasopressin because I get so much out of bonding with my wife. I don't know what to do with that.
0: Not to mention what she has to do with that. Um, Yeah, this is exactly our our discussion of, oh my God, we're machines. And you just proved that you're a machine who could know your machineness in that regard. And does that like do in hallmark cards? Does that do in like the feelings that you feel that you feel so strongly that they feel real, even if they aren't real because you're just a machine? Yeah, that's that's the challenge that we have that somehow we need to come to terms with us knowing our machineness in the sense that like you can do biomechanics on pelvic arches and angles of femurs with pelvic arches and thus in this species they could leap in this way and in that species they can't and here's the the equations that will prove it and that could make perfect sense to you and still you're Jaw drops open the first time you see that a gazelle can leap 20 feet across, you know, a riverbed. And that's the most amazing thing. And you're like, can't believe the world has produced something like this. And you can do that and understand the equations that it makes it possible for their hind legs to spring that way. We have to be able to sort of come to some sort of you know, treaty and peaceful stance with our knowing our machineness and knowing and sensing the gears just underneath the surface, explaining the things that make us who we are and you and your vasopressin receptor profile, while at the same time still being able to say, like, oh, it's amazing having somebody who your universe revolves around them and theirs around yours. And yeah, okay, it's vasopressin receptors. We need to be able to do that simultaneously because knowing like the architecture of a gazelle's pelvis should not take away your ability to just be awestruck by like how they turned out that way, how circumstances produced an animal that could that gracefully go flying that far in the air. So be intellectually taken with biomechanics and be grateful for the like awe and aesthetics of getting to watch it and i think that's the only thing we can do with our being machines who understand our machineness so okay good for you you got the right kind of vasopressin receptors um like may it bring you lots of pleasure and it's a good thing if it does somehow we have to reconcile that.
1: Mm, Yeah, well, it's definitely brought me a lot of pleasure. That is for sure. Um, The body is one thing that I'm always thinking about from an optimization standpoint. I'm always encouraging people that, remember you're having a biological experience. If you're not getting sleep, if you're not getting sunlight, if your diet sucks, if you're not exercising, like all of these things are gonna make it hard for you just to process the world. there's a couple things I'd like to touch on just to really drive this home for people. One is um, what I've heard you talk about before, which is the idea that the timing of your parole hearing to uh, when the last time the judge ate was, uh, and then Phineas Gage. The, and Phineas Gage is the one I always reach to when people are like, oh, what do you mean? Of course we have free will. I'm like, bro, uh, walk us through those. Phineas Gage.
0: Every every neuroscientist on earth at some point was sat down in their grandma grandpa's knee and told the tale of Phineas Gage, and neuroscientists almost are required to consider naming their kid after Phineas Gage. Phineas <laughs> Gage was a railroad construction line foreman in Vermont in the eighteen forties. Obviously. Like a sobriety reliable guy, if he was the foreman of this church-going, devout guy, showed up for work every day. All of that. One day, somebody like left a stick of dynamite where they shouldn't, and Gage was carrying this carrying this three foot tamping iron rod that you would do something with that to make <laughs> railroad lines go through mountains and stuff and this caused an explosion and it shot this metal pole into his eye and out the front part of his skull and it landed 30 feet away with a large part of his frontal cortex stuck to it and you know he had just had an interesting biological intervention and the (laughs) remarkable is this went through so fast and with such force that it cauterized all the blood vessels he wasn't even bleeding he was like a little bit dazed and got up and like somebody went and like got the the boss who looked in his head and said oh my god gauge i see which one you've got a hole in your head i can see all the way out of the top of your head and they said you know Tell you what, Gage, take the rest of the day off. Let's see you tomorrow. And some of his friends walked a mile and a half with him to go to the town doctor, who looked in there and said, "Oh, something shot through your eye and at the top of your skull, and weird." And this doctor proceeded to be able to document what happened to Gage, which was Gage was almost literally overnight transformed into this disinhibited, hyper-aggressive, alcoholic, sexually predatory, monstrous guy who was never able to work for years and years afterward. And what we had just learned was summarized by the doctor who in his notes, said gauge is no longer gauge. Something about that part of the brain constrains the animal energies within us. And that's a pretty good 19th century definition of what the frontal cortex does in terms of regulating behavior and emotion, all of that. And that was the first demonstration that you could change, like, the fundamental character and moral values and everything else of somebody just by mucking around with their brain, mucking around with an iron rod that goes through there. So, this was an unsubtle one. And thus, it's easy for us to appreciate that as the causative agent that had nothing to do with free will. But this is an extraordinary example. And all we've learned since then are subtler versions of it. One that should give one pause, which is depending on the study, 25 to 75% of the men on death row in this country have a history of a concussive head trauma to the front of their heads, where their frontal cortex is. And when you put that in context, You're not looking at bad souls, or you're not looking at people who just are not capable of feeling somebody else's pain right. You're looking at a broken machine. You're looking at a brain, a machine whose breaks in this particular domain were shattered by concussive trauma. So, you know Phineas Gage was the first of our lessons in that and all we've done since then is learn far more subtle stuff is underneath the surface than just metal rods or concussive head injuries you know this is where all of us are turning into who we are the judges the hungry judges i love this study um and it has been subject to some controversy. This was published in a very prestigious journal a number of years ago, looking at parole board judges in a particular country where the researchers were and they examined all of the decisions these judges made over the course of a year as to whether to parole somebody or send them back to prison. And this was well more than a thousand cases, something like that. And then looking for like, What predicted when a judge would free someone versus send them back for another five years? And out popped this flabbergasting finding, which was the single biggest predictor was how many hours it had been since the judge had eaten a meal. Oh, my God. See a judge right after lunch, and there was about a 60% chance of being paroled. By four hours later, you were down to basically a 1% chance. Oh, my. This This is like earth shattering, all of that. What is this about? This is about something very simple. Like when you haven't eaten, your blood sugar levels go down. When they're low, you don't have enough glucose to run your brain, which is the most expensive organ, like pound for pound in your body. And you especially don't have the means to run the most expensive part of your brain, the frontal cortex, the frontal cortex that would make you say, wait, 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 before you just send the guy back, Think a little bit about his circumstances. Think about whether, you know, someone like that makes you a little bit edgy because of how tough they look. Try to try to look past that. Think about how the world has been from their perspective. That takes energy in the same way that we become more selfish and less cooperative when we're hungry or tired or sleep deprived and all of that. Yeah, it's low blood glucose and your expensive part of the brain can't do the harder thing. So that's amazing. But what's even more interesting is like if you took a judge at that point and said, hey, look at this. You had a guy with the exact same history the other day there and you paroled that guy and this guy you sent back to jail. How come? They're not going to say because I had low blood glucose. They're <laughs> going like, to quote Emanuel Kant or something and and come up with a post hoc explanation. What's that telling us? You know, our most consequential decisions that tap into the core of us as morally reasoning beings. We're biological machines, all of that. That said, this study has been mired in controversy. One group sort of wrote in and challenged the conclusions based on statistics. And for my money, the original group reanalyzed their data in accord with these people's complaints and showed that it did nothing to their conclusion another group has challenged them on an artifact of how the study was done and that was then controlled for and shown to be intact another complaint was brought up which when you look at it closely makes the point of the original study even stronger i think it is held up and it is held up in other realms as well go in and you're going to go into a bank and ask a bank officer for a home loan mortgage loan or whatever Make sure you go in right after they've had lunch. The same exact phenomenon. The more hours it has been, the more likely they are to turn down a loan application. Mm. Studies where you give people job applications to read, and some of them by name are from an outgroup member, and some are from one of us, and the more hours it's been, the shorter time you spend reading the outgroup member's application before you toss it in the trash. The more hours a doctor has gone without sleeping, the more implicit racial bias they show when they make judgments about dosages for painkillers, all of that. Yeah, there's all this biology going on. And then the coolest thing is superimposed on that is this great cultural wrinkle that I saw in a paper that came out more recently, which is looking at one circumstance where the more hours it has been since the judge has eaten the meal, The more forgiving they are, and the more benevolent, and the more empathic. What is this about? These are Muslim judges in Sharia courts during Ramadan when they're fasting during daylight hours, and you're hungry then, not because, God damn it, I had to go to this meeting during lunchtime and I didn't get to eat and I'm starving now, because you're reflecting on the meaning of life and your responsibility to your fellow humans and what God wants of you. If that's the culture you're growing up in, Being hungry because it's Ramadan makes you more merciful. Get the same judge four weeks later and they're starving because they missed lunch and they're going to throw the book at the person just like the American judge would do. Whoa, so all of that mechanistically and then there's a cultural wrinkle that's thrown in on top of that. So if you were raised in that sort of culture, two different types of hunger bring out very different things in your moral decision-making process. Wow, not only are we we machines, we're really interesting ones.
1: Yeah, that is crazy to me that context can have that kind of impact on it, Um, which also makes me think about uh, dopamine, testosterone, things that people think they have like a really strong beat on. Oh, it does this, but in reality, they are way more context dependent. Um, Walk me through that. How is it possible that? Testosterone can mean one thing in one context and another in another. Because you're secreting it in response
0: to contextual information. Incredible mistake people have in their heads is that testosterone causes aggression. Testosterone does not cause aggression. Testosterone makes aggressive individuals more sensitive to social cues that trigger aggression. And there's all sorts of studies that have been done that show that testosterone does not turn on the radio. If the radio is already turned on, it ups the volume on it. It ups the sensitivity of the system to whatever you have been socially trained to learn to view as a provocation of aggression. So that, but then you see there's something even more subtle there going on. It's not that testosterone causes aggression. Yeah, 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 we just got rid of it. And it's not even that testosterone makes you more aggressive if you are already getting the social cues that trigger aggression. What testosterone really does is make you more likely to do whatever behaviors give you status when your status is being challenged. Okay, you're a baboon and your status is being challenged because some guy is like hassling you and challenging you. If you're a baboon, Status being challenged is answered by you get into a fight with a guy. Baboons are a lot simpler than us. But then in our world, all you have to do is go to like some fancy ass private school that's having their annual auction and fundraiser or whatever. And you see a whole bunch of like self satisfied captain of industry rich guys there who are on the board at the place. And they're sitting there half drunk because they make sure the banquet has lots of alcohol flowing. And then you get to watch these like masters of the universe compete with each other as to who could bid the highest in this charitable auction. Oh my God. These are apes who are sitting there trying to maintain their social status by seeing who can give away more of their money. Whoa. We're a weird species. Go explain that one to a baboon. And you can show this experimentally. There are economic games where people accrue status by being more generous, give people testosterone, and they make more generous offers. The issue isn't that, say, testosterone makes aggression more likely and that that's the problem.
1: The problem is that we hand out status for aggression so readily. That is very interesting to me. And what do you make of the fact that, well, what I take away from that is that men are selected for their response to testosterone, which is why they have so much more of it than women, uh, which means that men for some reason, evolution wanted to make sure that we would defend our status. What do you think that's all about? Well, that
0: immediately fits into things like that gets you more copies of your genes passed on and that sort of business going back to the fundamentals there. What it tells by the time you get to us is there's a lot of different ways to optimize that. We're a complicated species. And sometimes you do that by like being a CEO maverick and. You know, before you know it, that's one version of incredible status. And some of the time you do it by like being a warlord somewhere and, you know, context-dependent. We are a very heterogeneous species in terms of cultures and cultural values. And what we mostly have are brains that evolved not to be set in stone, but instead
1: to be malleable enough to learn what your particular culture's rules are. Do you think that? Um, it indicates that women are selecting males based on status?
0: Yes, and most studies indicate that. One classic body of work by a guy named David Buss, University of Texas at Austin, um, doing this massive cross-cultural study of people all over the planet and like, here's 25 adjectives and rate them for how far they are up in your list of what you would look for in a in a partner in a in a spouse whatever and what you saw was consistently men uh in every culture out there uh averaged preferring partner who was a number of years younger than them consistently women chose for partners who were older than them consistently women put money-earning capacity in the guy higher up on the list than the guy would do. Consistently, men put potential fertility higher up on the list than women would do. And this was cross-cultural. This was all over the world. Oh my God, some of this stuff is so solid there. And then you find out what the most interesting thing is about the study, which is regardless of culture, the most common number one thing on the list was kindness, Oh, my God, all this cultural stuff and inculcation into roles and gender roles. And maybe it's not inculcation because biology is making that. And we're so different women and men and Mars and Venus. And and yeah, at the end of the day, like everyone put kindness at the top of their list. So like we make perfect sense as just another primate when you look at us through one angle and then we're completely bizarre and unprecedented in another that like you can have people who are hunter gatherers or living in like the middle of Chicago and somebody who's a socialist or someone who's a capitalist or some and they all come out with roughly the same list of preferences there yet a list that has some stereotypical gender differences. Oh, We're a really weird primate. We're a primate,
1: but we're a very unique one. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if, if. only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15
0: per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: The things that people rate from a sexual attractiveness perspective has become very much a hot button issue. Um, I'm very curious to hear what you think about this. Whenever I think about my wife as being like me, I, my prediction engine breaks, and I can no longer predict her behavior. When I think of women, and look, of course, there's more overlap than there is difference, hundred percent. But there's a great—I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't remember who said this, but uh, there's a quote that goes: um, "Any individual man is a mystery, but put them in the aggregate, and they are a mathematical certainty." And uh, I will say that the same is true of women. I, that makes a lot of sense to me. That if you're looking at any one person, of course, you have to get to know them. You have to figure out what is particular about them. But as you begin to step back to the population level, suddenly you get a lot of things, a lot of um, traits that become reliable at a, um, at a population level. And so when I think of my wife as being very different than me, um, of having more classically feminine ways of approaching the world. So she doesn't have my level of aggression. She is far more, um, interested in people than things. She's far more interested in subtleties of communication. Um, she, um, values me for very different things and I value her. I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap, but just that there become these outliers. Uh, do you see that as yes, at the population level, there are going to be, there are big differences between men and women, or no, 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 that's all much ado about nothing. And um better to think of them as as you would think of yourself?
0: Well, it depends in what domain you're making the assessment. Uh, higher ability appropriateness to cast a vote in a ballot sort of thing yeah it took this country only a bunch of centuries to figure out that that's not a domain in which sex differences are pertinent so there it shouldn't matter and it doesn't matter and equal pay and you know all that sort of stuff hooray for a progressive agenda um when it looks at systematized thought versus relational thought and sex differences in that that's a fairly reliable one those are interesting and like people even know what different gonadal hormones do to the cortex during fetal life and stuff like that so that's really interesting but what you come down to is exactly your point which is there's no human out there who is an average human um your average human is an average human but there is no individual who fits averageness across the board, because it's a statistical artifact if you throw enough data points together and patterns emerge, and patterns emerge with certain distributions of frequencies, and thus you can identify somebody who's average in the middle, but look closely, and they're not going to be side by some trader or whatever. That's why, I don't know, sociologists probably can tell us a whole lot more about you know what is changing the economy will do to rates of violence than psychotherapists can do. Because one of them specializes in aggregate predictability from populations and the other one does one case at a time. And depending on what you want to know, one could be a more valid approach than the other. But yeah, individuals on the average are individualistic and, you know, hooray for that and we're far more variable than your average you know, porcupine is because we evolved in a way where a lot more elbow room in the workings of the system.
1: So I want to go back to neurochemistry. So dopamine has become something that people are really focused on these days in terms of the way that our lives are um, structured such that, you know, whether it's being on social media, just the way that a phone is able to trigger all these rewards, uh, that phones seem designed very much like a slot machine with colors and sounds and alerts and alarms um, what what do you what do you advise for people that you know in terms of if if our goal in this interview is to get out a bunch of ideas that uh, non- free will having beings uh, will hopefully take on and move in a direction that's more useful um, what do you tell people about dopamine about dopamine detoxing how should people, approach a life if they want to not become the puppet of their phone?
0: I think one thing to recognize is another one of those misnomers. Testosterone is not about aggression. Dopamine is not about reward and pleasure. Initially it is, but when you look more closely, what it's more about is it's about anticipation of pleasure. It's about how great it is going to be when the reward actually happens. The neurochemistry of that is much more built around endogenous opioid-like neurotransmitters. Things like. Dopamine is about anticipation. And even more importantly, dopamine is about the motivation you derive from that anticipation. How many times are you willing to press that lever with your paw in order to get that reward there? What dopamine is about is it's the fuel for goal-directed behavior. And that's a very different picture than dopamine is about reward and such. Because it tells you the fueling of behavior with dopamine is mostly about the fueling of the ability to hold your breath and wait because it's going to be that much more amazing when it comes. The ability to decide the future may carry a larger reward than the present, and it's worth waiting for. And, you know, mice can do that. Monkeys can do that. And they could do that for a few minutes at a time. And we could do it, deciding that if you have a certain mindset, doing a certain sort of delayed gratification will get you into heaven when you're dead. Whoa, you could maintain dopamine as like a motivator of, you know, anticipation of reward and thus living a pure sacred life or whatever, because you're gonna like, wind up in paradise afterward, or because you're maintaining dopamine while you press the lever over and over because you've got this bizarre thing. You want to leave a better planet for your great grandchildren. Like, we take the basic dopamine system. That like motivates you to press a lever in order to get a nice food pellet if you're like a monkey sitting there or a lab rat. And then we do it for like taking on a five-generation long project of building some like gothic cathedral where like you were gonna train your children to be the stonemason who will take over when you die. And like, whoa, we could maintain dopamine up there for incredibly long periods of time. So that's the first thing people should know about dopamine and and us when trying to make sense of, like, we're the species that can hold our breath for a long, long, long time. And that's very unique. The other thing about it is, like, you look at a baboon and you look at what are its sources of pleasure in life? What are some of the things it could anticipate? And it's basically, like, food that you want, or sex that you're motivated about, or if you're in a bad mood, somebody smaller and weaker who you can beat up on to displace your frustration. And that's about it for bad baboon's like inventory of things to feel anticipatory about. But then you get us And we've got people who could be anticipatory that, you know, with another 14 years of digging an old divide gorge, you're going to pull up a hominid fossil like nothing anyone's ever seen. And you are going to feel such pleasure. And you've been scraping there in the sun for 14 years out of anticipation. That has got to be there. And then you turn around And then you also use dopamine because the donut you get afterward when you come in at the end of the day tastes delicious and you know, it's going to taste delicious. And then you turn around and you use dopamine because the smell of a flower is going to be amazing. And then you turn it around because you hope that, whoa, once again, you can have like multiple orgasms in one. And then when that's all done, you go to the symphony and like, you can't believe Beethoven could do such things with like a Piketty third chord or something like that. And we're weird because we've got to use the same dopamine system. It's the same neurotransmitter and it's the same circuitry. And we use it for everything from like the smell of a flower to winning the lottery to taking cocaine to like understanding a passage of like some philosopher who's impenetrable and suddenly it makes sense. And Ooh, we just released dopamine just like a baboon does when it has just killed a gazelle and is getting to eat it. What a bizarre species we are. And the only way we can do that, in that some of the time on our dopamine dial, going from zero to 10 means a great smelling flower. And some of the time going from zero to 10 is you've just won the lottery. The only way we can do that is it's a system that has to reset. The gain on the system really fast. Because right now you're doing good flower smells, and you've got a way, have to have a way to tell the system we've just switched over to winning the lottery, dopamine. And going from zero to 10 on that is totally different than going zero to 10 on the flowers. And people are beginning to actually figure out unique things about circuitry in the human brain of the dopamine system that allows you to reset the gain on the system more. There's more little feedback loops in the wiring, the system, which is totally cool stuff and has to work that way. And once you've got a system that can reset, so you can go from doing flowers to the lottery and then back again to like solving a math equation, you got a downside to that, which I think people need to be aware of, and one that explains like an incredible percentage of human misery. If you've got a system that resets that e- easily, by definition, whatever was an amazing, wonderful surprise yesterday is going to feel like something you're entitled to today and is going to feel insufficient tomorrow. And that's this price of perpetual hunger That we pay for a system that constantly has to has to habituate to whatever the latest pleasure was, because you got to reset the whole thing for starting the appetitive motivation process all over again. And guarantees whatever's nice now is gonna leave you hungry tomorrow. And like that's how we go do things like invent, you know, vaccines and fly to the moon and and write whatever grand achievements that yeah we can have extraordinary sources of motivation to carry us through with that um but another way of stating that is what is okay today is going to be insufficient tomorrow and yeah but what have i done lately my next novel has to be even better than this one or my next public offering has to be even more successful than this one we're the species that always gets hungry again is another way of saying that we're a species that always habituates to the present which is another way of saying that we're the species that has to use the same dopamine system for incredibly different things on like the turn of a dime spinning on a dime or whatever and that's the price we pay we're always going to invent new stuff Unlike chimps, chimps make tools and all of that, and you find 20,000-year-old paleontological sites of chimps tool-making, and they were making the same tools 20,000 years ago that they're making now. They don't have incremental advances in their material culture. We're the species that keeps inventing new stuff, and we're the species that also, what was great yesterday is going to be kind of boring tomorrow and more and more and more.
1: So, how do we avoid uh, dying on the treadmill of dopamine?
0: Well, I think awareness of it is a good thing. Those of us who celebrate on a regular basis, we have somewhere in their values in our heads that what is implicit in us could be made more visible and examinable by explicit self-reflection, and we're even like able to understand literatures that showing things like implicit biases when made explicit by self-reflection weakens those implicit biases yeah think about this stuff wonder why it is like what was amazing yesterday isn't feeling like quite enough today and why it's boring now and you should be able to get something better and more exciting and something shinier and newer and all of that like whether it's a neurochemist version of understanding it or i don't know like what was that theologian merton who wrote about this a lot that level of understanding this in either version that sort of insight should make you a little bit skeptical about the omnipresence of your hungers and that's a realm in which whether it's poetry or reading neurochemistry journals, if either of those accomplished that, that's a good thing. That's a good way to make mechanism work to your advantage and recognize how much we are running on hunger that like, takes us up wrong pathways. And even if it takes us up, the right one it isn't going to last for very long.
1: Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. One thing that I found very useful in life is exactly what you're talking about now, which is the idea of just pulling something into the light, acknowledging what it is, understanding its impact. Uh, and then being able to make changes based on now that I know. That was a big breakthrough for me um, in my life with brain plasticity, which you mentioned at the very top of the interview. Um, Once I could understand what was happening, I knew how to take advantage of it. So we, you know, we've talked a lot about obviously that free will doesn't exist. We've talked about the ways that our brain works and how we're trapped by biology. Now, again, going back to the word diagram, entitlement is going to be this gigantic word. Um, I understand what you're afraid of when it comes to free will, but now I want to talk about at a societal level the the changes that you want to see um, be made. So I think that look, your book basically breaks into two parts. Number one is free will doesn't exist. And you give extraordinarily detailed and compelling reasons why that is true. Um, I'll sum up for me, Phineas Gage was all I needed to hear. Like, oh, wait, I can completely change somebody's life just by damaging their brain. Like That to me just makes it so self-evident. There could be no soul. There could be um, nothing beyond my ability to uh, process and so whether I'm disrupting that by something I'm eating that's disrupting my gut, which is disrupting the serotonin that's being made, which therefore my brain has less to deal with. Like it just seems so self-evident to me that we are our biology, and I will never understand. Uh, I have awe, and this is something you were very clear about. Recognizing this stuff leaves me in awe. I I stand in wonder and the same kind of reverence that people that are religious have i have that and i want that for people and 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 i love that but it just seems impossible for me to make the leap that we have a soul when i'm like well what if my brain got damaged like do i then reconstitute when i'm in heaven like i don't understand it doesn't make any sense to me uh also i have a terrible memory am i going to have a terrible memory in heaven like all it just this is also weird to me so Setting that aside, though, so now we look at the criminal justice system, and this becomes the second half of the book, which is like, okay, if I can get you all to believe that is as uncomfortable as it is to embrace that free will doesn't exist, that you don't get to own your um, accomplishments in the way that you would probably want to, uh, but the criminal justice system and the changes that you want, I think, will be the other controversial part. So what's the what's the pitch in reality? So if we're gonna quarantine people, um, what do you mean by that? And how do we actually pull it off? Okay, so when deciding you could subtract
0: responsibility, let alone like a culpable soul, out of making sense of humans damaging actions against other humans, Um, What you're left with there is how do we protect society from people who are dangerous? And what sort of the public health model, quarantine model of infectious disease is built around is number one, figure out how to constrain the person so that they're no longer an infectious danger to people around them. Number two, don't do a smidgen more than that because the person doesn't deserve that. Number three, make sure you're framing that in a context where this person had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that there's some like virus fluming out of their lungs now into the air around them. And number four, put effort into understanding where disease like that comes from, original causes and stuff. And when that's turned into the same thing for dealing with like damaging humans in the way that we would call now criminality, figure out how to constrain them so that they're not dangerous anymore. Obviously, like not believing in free will doesn't mean we'll just let murderers running around all over the place. Constrain them. Don't do it an inch more than you need to. Don't preach to them in the process about how there's some sort of soul that's relevant to all of that. And make sure like any good public health person, You are interested in root causes and try to figure out what it is that creates people who are damaging in that way and try to fix things at that level. And this sounds completely like, you know, absurdly idealistic or something, but we do that all the time. And just to give two different domains, we do that all the time. You get a car whose brakes aren't working and it's dangerous. It'll kill people. You don't know how to fix it. It's dangerous. Constrain it. Don't use it. Put it in a garage. Don't do a smidgen more than that. Don't go in every day with a sledgehammer and smash the hood of the car because it deserves retribution for the fact that its brakes failed and it hit someone. Don't preach to it. And at that point, try to figure out why brakes fail. Okay, so that's, that's machines as machines, but what about us as machines? How do we do that where we really can subtract out a sense of responsibility and blame and culpability? Well, we do that all the time. There's a circumstance where there's a certain type of human who is dangerous to the people around them. They will harm them. They will damage them, and this is a danger. And we have to take societal steps to prevent this from happening. And what do you do if that's your kid and they have a nose cold? You keep them home from kindergarten tomorrow because the rule is if your child is sneezing a lot, please keep them home so they don't get everybody else sick. Constrain them, quarantine them so that they're now not a danger to the other classmates, but don't tell them they can't play with their toys today when they're home because they're bad having caught a rhinovirus and don't like confuse health with purity of soul like previous centuries and tell them they've gotten a rotten soul and that's why they're sneezing. And make sure people are figuring out why people get nose colds and if there's a way to prevent it. Wow, we have subtracted a blemish on your pristine moral soul out of five-year-old sneezing and we're able to protect other kids from getting the nose cold. And we don't tell this kid that they're a rotten human because they're sneezing and it's a more humane place and it's a healthier place.
1: Great. That's our blueprint. We've got two things that we've been talking about this entire episode. One is biology. Everything is downstream of that, uh, but it's also downstream of ideas. And so the one thing that I worry about with this approach is that If we assume people don't have free will, but they are going to respond to the ideas that they're able to ingest, um, by one, let's take the kid example that has a nose cold. So that works, quarantining them works because the immune system's kicking in is going to fix that. The car brakes thing, um, that's probably closer because there's something wrong, and let's say we're not a mechanic, so we don't know how to fix it. We know it's dangerous. We can recognize that. We can put the car in a garage. Um, That's incarceration of some kind, whether it's a mental hospital or otherwise. And while I hope that tomorrow we have the breakthrough and this becomes the thing that you can cure and then it's you you quarantine them long enough to cure them and then you let them go, um, but we don't yet have that solution. So it still ends up being incarceration. Now I hear you. And one of the things you want is just to make sure that we're not smashing the car hood because it deserves to be smashed for having bad brakes. I, I definitely understand that, but I, that still feels like incarceration. And then as we get into what that's going to look like in real life, it, feels like that's just going to play out the same way that we are now, because they're going to be housed with other people. It is going to be the violent and the deranged, and it's all going to end badly. The second part of this is, uh, do you know um, Sam Bankman Freed? Do I know? Okay. No, but I certainly- No, no, no. I just mean the the story of what so, happened. So Yeah, which is fast. Okay. So for- he's very fascinating for people that don't know quick primer, um, ends up defrauding people out of $8 billion. He's awaiting sentencing right now, but he's been convicted. Now the weird twist here is that his mother wrote an essay, uh, called beyond blame saying like, Hey, like we have to, I mean, very similar to what you're saying now, this, I, I don't know that she said broken car, but like you you have to separate the um the person from the thing that they did, and so one, I'm not saying that sam uh is abusing the system though that is another thing that you have to worry about is whatever system you put in place, people are going to exploit it a hundred percent and so follow the show me the incentives, and I'll show you the outcome says um Berkshire Hathaway, I'm forgetting is Charlie Munger so. If you incentivize people to say, oh, it wasn't me, which it wasn't, but like people will begin ideas, will plant themselves in people's minds that are, you know, have that criminal nature to begin with. And and they're going to leverage that in the system. It's like what we see right now with you make it, uh, you don't prosecute people that steal less than $900 or whatever, and they'll go in and steal 899. We're watching that play out. So, um, I worry about that. Do you think it is just pure coincidence that um, Sam Bankman-Fried's mother happened to write an article about that, and he happens to be what, the second biggest uh, fraud of all time? And no doubt
0: competitive with Bernie Madoff because he isn't quite in his league. Um, Sam's mother, who I am forced to note is a colleague of mine Hmm. she's a professor at stanford law school and has built a career about sort of issues of free will and stuff and i i can't get past the point that it's just the most wonderfully ironic thing on earth and i can't like stop just seeing that as like a meme for like the unlikely turns that happen in the world oh my god of course his mother (laughs) that's what kind of legal scholar she is and then when you look closely that both she and her husband benefited financially quite a bit from sam's shenanigans yeah yeah okay we've got an irresistible version of the oh my god if you convince people there's no free will we're all just going to run amok people are going to run amok because there's no responsibility and there have been some unfortunately highly compelling convincing studies done, supposedly showing that when you psychog- psych- psychologically manipulate people uh, to believe less in their agency, they cheat more at games immediately afterwards things, Yeah, we're all going to run amok because, because the devil is just underneath the surface and thank God it's only the veneer of reward and punishment and societal disdain that keeps you acting civilly and we're all just, you know, Hobbesian savages underneath. But then you look closer at that literature and instead of looking at somebody who you've just manipulated into feeling a little bit less belief in their agency, get somebody who comes in and says, I don't believe in free will. I haven't believed in it forever. I don't believe in it. And you put them in a circumstance like that, and they are exactly as highly ethical as is someone who believes we need to be held responsible for our every action and all of that. What's that about? There's an amazing parallel. The other version of people will just run amok. They'll run amok if they stop believing in God. Because forget you're not responsible for your actions. This is the version of no one will hold you responsible for your ultimate actions. And oh my God, they're gonna run amok and that whole thing. And what you see when you look at it is atheists, people who are stridently solid in their atheism, are just as moral in their behavior as are the most religiously observant people out there. And who are the ones who fall off but that that you know, Olympian state there, it's the people in between for whom they don't believe in God, but it's mostly because they're apathetic about it, or they're religious, but it's just for the kids or just in the holidays or whatever. And what you see is this ironic thing. You get somebody who has thought long and hard about the basis of human goodness and what we owe to our fellow human and where meaning comes from and all that. And it basically doesn't matter if your conclusion is, yes, we have free will and we are the agents of our action, or you conclude, yes, there is a God, or if you conclude there's no free will or there's no God, the fact that you've done the hard work to think through this is what virtually guarantees that neither end of the spectrum runs amok. And, you know, as one quasi-anecdotal example of this. After World War II, there are all sorts of sociological studies of who are the people who risked their lives to save various outgroup members from Nazis and stuff, And it wasn't the people with rarefied philosophy degrees. And it wasn't the people who were highly religious in a particular way. It was people who were either highly religious or highly secular and were brought up that way by their parents and had built a system of moral imperatives built around that. Because you thought long and hard about it. And it doesn't really matter which end of it you wind up with. And, you know, in the face of, but, you know, still, you're a dangerous person. You're going to put them in a prison with other violent people, and that's just a breeding ground. And like, that doesn't look good. I'm virtually required by law to say at this point the Scandinavians, the Scandinavians, they have a penal system that avoids most of that. And they have a system where responsibility is viewed as far less part of the picture than the American system. And they have a system where prisoners are treated far, far better and where the principle is one of quarantine and minimal constraint and nothing more than that. And, oh, my God, people are going to run amok and they've got one tenth the violent crime rate that we do. And they have one fifth the recidivism rate that we do.
1: Talk to me more about that. I'm I'm not aware of that. So what do they do in the prison system? Uh, Are they educating people? Are they um, really cracking down on violent outbursts? How do they pull that off?
0: Yeah, they do all that. And they view that as a system. Okay, the the greatest example is Anders Breivik. He was that white supremacist guy who 10 years ago, whatever, went and killed 75 people in Norway. Um, went to this island where there was a whole bunch of a progressive party's summer camp for teenagers thing going on, and he killed a cop and took his uniform and showed up there pretending and mowed down seventy kids there after Jesus. he had after setting off a bomb just outside the office of the prime minister, who is a progressive liberal and in fact had grown up in that summer camp program and all of that. And this was the worst atrocity in the history of, like, Norway. And he made it worse by, throughout his trial, giving pseudo-Nazi salutes throughout, insisting he wanted to be considered a prisoner of war, of, like, the white knights of Templar army trying to save Europe from the the ethnic horde. And, like... And what do they do? They convicted him, and they gave him the longest jail sentence possible that is allowed by law in Norway. He's in jail for about 20 years, and he has an apartment. He has internet access. He's currently enrolled as a part-time student at the University of Oslo, irony of ironies, majoring in political science and he's got like a fitness machine and when he's getting a little bit lonely like the state will pay retired cops to come and play cards with him because he's feeling a little bit isolated there because he has ren- renounced his beliefs and he's still dangerous so his constraint has to involve he doesn't get to interact much with other people and like that's what done that's what's done with him and that's the sort of society they have and amid that They've got a far, far lower crime rate than they do for a gazillion other reasons than in the United States because they believe governments should support the social needs of people. And, you know, off we go in the Scandinavian utopias that may not hold up to close examination, all that great. So it's not just that, but the surest measure of it is you ask member of societies after that trial was completed, was justice done? And an overwhelming majority of people in Norway thought this was the appropriate thing to do with him. And you asked wow. the family members of his victims, and there were a few of them who wanted to torture him for the rest of the time, but the most average response of family members of the victims was, yeah, he's away. The government has done what it's supposed to do. He's away. And even better than he could never harm someone again. We never have to think about him again, that pathetic, broken guy who latched on to vicious, you know, rabid ideology at some point because he had been a nobody mediocrity his whole life, and this made him feel important for a little while, and he fell into the hands of sociopaths who manipulated them, him with their ideology. Yeah, poor schmuck, that's how he turned out to be like that. But best of all, we don't have to think about him anymore. He's never going to hurt anyone anymore. And that's the kind of society they've constructed there. Oh, my God, people are going to run amok. No, they've got a fraction of the crime rate that we do in the United States and a fraction of the recidivism rate. The the purpose of their quarantine system is to train somebody to have useful skills when they come out the other end, to have a society that has a network that will give them the opportunity to live by that. And along the way, try to teach them skills about empathy and like trying to understand what damage consists of and what it is you did to other people. And whoa, it works. It works better than here. And it works better than here in a place where not only do we believe in God and free will and something that we inculcate your average American kid in from, like, kindergarten, but where we prove over and over that it hasn't done any good because we're a society filled with violence and treating people terribly and stuff like that. So, like, whoa, a lot that God-fearing has gotten us in this country here. Yeah, yeah. You look at the th- the options, the comparisons to choose from, and like there's better ways of doing it and ways that are capable of subtracting out the pleasure of punishment and retribution and the notion that penalizing somebody is a virtue in and of itself. And you could subtract all that stuff out, and it's a more humane place, and it works better.
1: Such an interesting debate, this whole thing, free will, all of it. It's crazy. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people uh, follow you?
0: Oh, well, I have to say at this point, you know, I got this book and it just got published last month and it's called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will, uh, Penguin Random House. Where people can follow me, I don't know, but my young adult children have recently gotten enthused about this. And I'm doing something now. I don't know if I'm <laughs> tick or Twittering or ask me anything on AMA on tick. They, they've set that up because they insist that I'm. Do- so as of a week ago, I have a social media presence and that is all I know about it. Um, so, Somewhere I'm out there, and good luck finding it. I sure don't know how to, but welcome to the 21st century, even if I'm not really part of it yet.
1: That's all right. Free will, uh, it, lacking free will has has led you to that. So nobody nobody blames you. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, That way people can find you very easily. You are well worth following. That is for sure. Speaking of things that are well worth following, everybody, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.